Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Even before the first words of Brett Kavanaugh, the president's nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court, Democrats were pressing the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee to adjourn the hearing, citing the late release of documents related to Brett Kavanaugh. Now, here to tell us more about this is our legal analyst and the co-host of Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power and Law, none other than my colleague, June Grosso. June, was this expected on the part of the Democrats? Yes, they were going to try to bring up the fact. It's not just that they got, by the way, 42,000 documents were released last night by the attorney who's reviewing the documents of when Kavanaugh was in the Bush White House as its secretary to President George W. Bush. So, they didn't they knew that they hadn't gotten hundreds of thousands of documents that they've requested from those years and that could contain um different kinds of issues related to for example the torture problems that they were that they in, encountered in the Bush White House so there's a lot these would be opinions or comments that Brett Kavanaugh had written <laughs> while he was a counselor in the White House. We don't know exactly what it'd be, but it'd be all the emails and all those those uh, things that go back and forth between him and his position of power, as far as that's concerned, and other people as to the positions the George W. Bush White House took. So we, it wasn't so much opinions, as in legal opinions, but other kinds of things. What, what side was he on? And, and some of those issues he bypassed, he got around during his confirmation hearings for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So they wanted all those documents. And as you know, this has been a rush to push this through. The Republicans said they wanted to do it right after Labor Day. They want him on the court in time for the session in October. So it has been a big rush. And so they complained about it and they tried to get the hearings put off. But it was, we know it's to no avail. Chuck Gray basically said, I'm going to listen to you. And then he ruled. He's the uh, the chairman of the of the Judiciary yes. Committee. But in addition to the release of the documents, they're also classified as committee confidential. Exactly. What does that so mean? That, so that's a good question. And I don't know the real answer to that, because if they want, you would think that if you want, they want to ask questions about it, they're going to have to somehow make reference to it without revealing what was in it. It sounds like an impossible situation if they're classified as committee confidentiality, because that means that the committee only, it's for the committee eyes only. So the public doesn't have access to that. So query whether they can really ask him any questions on that. So there doesn't seem to be at least anything procedurally that the Democrats on the committee can do. No, there's nothing they can do, really, because it's it's a question of the Republicans are in control of the committee and Chuck Grassley is in control of the committee. And what he says and the way they vote will always be Republican heavy unless some Republican decides all of a sudden to vote with the Democrats, which is unlikely. And we should also mention that the 5149 GOP control of the Senate looks to be confirmed because Arizona's governor will appoint a senator to replace the late John McCain. Right. And it doesn't look like either of the female Republican senators that Democrats have targeted as perhaps saying, for example, Susan Collins of Maine, that they would vote with the Democrats because they are pro-choice. 
it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Susan Collins of Maine at least said that she asked Brett Kavanaugh about Roe v. Wade, and he said it was settled law. Now, that's a phrase that lawyers and especially people trying to become judges like to use to say, but it means really not much. It means that as of now, it's settled and that's a precedent, but they can also overturn any precedent. In this last Supreme Court term, we saw Judge Gorsuch, who had talked about settled law and respecting precedent, be in the majority to overturn a 40-year-old precedent about union fees. So that really means nothing. So it's just a way to kind of get rid of the question. It's it's a he will have many many ways to get rid of the question. He's been in intensive. They call them really murder boards, and it's sort of like every you sitting there and they just throw every question that you can possibly imagine. And CNN's reported that they also had protesters and shouted things at him and did different things to make him at ease for when he's in front of this committee. And there were even protesters this morning that had to be carried out. So he is prepared and he's going to have answers. For example, uh, I can't talk about a case that's going to come before me. Well, I respect settled precedent, but how can I, you know, I can't talk about something that's going to happen in the future. And you'll hear those, the same things you heard from Judge, uh, Chief Judge now, Chief Justice John Roberts. Uh, he's going to have some baseball analogies, talking about calling, only calling balls and strikes and being like an umpire. Those are in some of the prepared remarks that we had a look at. Now, the Trump administration has also cited executive privilege in order to prevent about 100,000 pages of records from his time as the White House counsel in the George W. Bush administration. Yes, and that's unusual because I don't know of another time where executive privilege was injected as part of Supreme Court hearings. I mean, usually all those documents by that time are revealed. And I don't remember another hearing where there was this late late, you know, display of documents, 42,000 documents overnight. Now, not even their staff can get through 42,000 documents overnight. And as we've mentioned, they're they're still marked by executive privilege. So they're supposed to be just for the committee only. But um, that that is a very unusual kind of uh, declaration, you might say. And it's going to keep all those documents, which are the kind of documents that Democrats would like to get their hands on. Um, Senator Feinstein said today, uh, some, she said something, well, we would like to prove, you know, have the documents. We'd like to prove we know that you're at this position, but we don't have any proof of it yet. Thank you very much. June Grasso, our legal analyst, co-host of Politics, Policy, Power and Law. The shares of Nike, they are down nearly 3% today. Here to tell us more about the company and its new ad campaign that will feature Colin Kaepernick. Let's turn to Bert Flickinger. He is the managing director for Strategic Resource Group. You can follow Bert on Twitter at Bert underscore Flickinger. Bert Flickinger, why do you think Nike has turned to Colin Kaepernick for a new ad campaign? Tim, uh, Nike's lost some of its cool and cachet, and it's uh, t- uh, trying to recover it on the 30th anniversary. 
on uh, the Just Do It campaign that started ignominiously uh, after Gary Gilmore, uh, the murderer of a, a Utah gas station attendant and um, Utah motel clerk, told the prison firing squad uh, just to pull the trigger and just do it and kill him. And, and then that became uh, the uh, genesis of the Nike uh, Just Do It do it ads in, in 1988, which which continued. And this will certainly sell more sneakers, but as you reference on the Bloomberg Terminal, Nike's down uh, almost 3%, uh, double what Adidas is down. And uh, while Nike has the uh, big bucks uh, to pay, to pay uh, the most famous athletes, uh, teams, universities, etc., cetera, uh, students that uh, we're seeing from around the world are, are wearing New Balance, wearing Puma, wearing the Adidas three-stripe, and Nike's going the wrong way. And, and Pam, a big part of this is Nike was a really socially uh, responsible uh, company in the the 80s and 90s uh, with with the Just Let Me Play campaign that Liz Dolan and Joe McCarthy and Dan Wyden of Wyden Kennedy did uh, uh, to to help help oppressed uh, women and girls and uh, get uh, resources uh, through sports, et cetera. And uh, now uh, Nike, Nike seems to be following uh, controversy, which is okay to certainly take a stand uh, commercially. Uh, but but Nike needs to go back to its roots and uh, re- really uh, get behind women and girls, which is, which is over half the market that uh, Nike's ignored uh, to its peril, uh, and also uh, pressure on its stock price, as you referenced. Well, what do you mean by Nike's strategy? Do they have a strategy to combat Adidas or Adidas, however you want to describe it, or Puma, that may be held in higher esteem when it comes to things like social media and controversy? Strategy, Pim, in, in my view, financially is is stri- has been strip mining America of uh, uh, do it, being the one major uh, shoe manufacturer that that does uh, virtually uh, that does all its manufacturing offshore, and a lot of controversy in terms of uh, factory casualties uh, and and other uh, re- really bad problems. And uh, uh, Nike originally with with the Just Do It uh, with the Michael Jordan campaign. Uh, ultimately, uh, later Derek Jeter, uh, re- really world-renowned and respected athletes, eclipsed uh, what Converse had been doing uh, in the great Magic Johnson and, and Larry Bird commercials produced by uh, Spike Lee. And now uh, it's it's more to your point, social and digital and connective media uh, for Nike to get attention, getting attention sells shoes, uh, but isn't necessarily covering all of, uh, the key cornerstones of social responsibility, especially with women and girls, as, as Nike's uh, beca- become a large uh, corp- corporation, uh, similar to what Warren Beatty did as uh, Ms. Uh, Leo Farnsworth in Heaven Can Wait. Why can't we do everything <laughs> well, uh, right? And Nike doesn't seem to be doing everything right. Nike just seems to be just doing it or maybe don't uh, just doing it uh, in terms of all the right things. Well, Bert, what would you suggest that they do that they're not doing? I, the, the the big thing is, uh, for for example, uh, was with a uh, Darius uh, who coached uh, more uh, Olymp- Olympic uh, w- w- women's ice hockey stars and uh, contending for a national championship on thirty eight thousand a year. 
whether it's Cornell or Ivy League or NCAA or women's NBA or or, or women's soccer pro leagues, uh, ne- neither neither the NHL nor the N- nor the NBA uh, nor any of the other uh, leagues are sponsoring uh, women's and girls sports. None of them are giving them the resources. Uh, That's where you uh, think Nike ought to be putting its money and its strategy behind women's sports. Yeah, and they Pim, uh, they get the return uh, because women make over half of the purchase decisions, and in, in terms of participation in, in sports, uh, whether it's field hockey, ice hockey, uh, football uh, worldwide, or called soccer in the U.S., uh, that's the key to Nike's future. Adidas and, and others see it. Uh, Nike ap- apparently is obtusely missing it uh, when Nike really got it 20, 25 years ago to be a worldwide leader. Now it's a Well, in that context, Bert Flickinger, how did Adidas or Adidas succeed in fashion with the Stan Smith sneaker, which is a retro look? How did they succeed at this and Nike miss it? Uh, the, the the Stan Stan Smith and uh, uh, U S Open and uh, the uh, the retro Adidas, uh, regard, regardless of the sport, is really connecting, uh, particularly with students, uh, junior high school, high school, uh, community college, college, young adults, uh, who who look at look at the history. Uh, it's one of the reasons Nike, after in my view, uh, anti competitive and uh, uh, pricing and and potentially predatory practices in my professional view not converse out converse was a leader in doing what you're saying uh with with retro shoes and converse was really the innovator nike uh bought them out of bankruptcy but didn't continue the uh great legacy uh that was uh, built by the converse company and so adidas or adidas uh has seized that mantle and capitalized on it and and adidas is it too uh, late though bert is it too late for nike to use converse as a wedge to drive those kinds of sales Give you about 20 seconds. Can use Converse as a wedge. Uh, what we're seeing in Japan, uh, throughout Asia, and in Europe is Converse is still extremely popular, especially with young women, and that's uh, the, the key catalyst uh, for, for Nike's growth beyond the Nike brand. All right. Well, we got to leave it there, but thanks very much to Bert Flickinger talking about Nike. The pain when it comes to emerging markets. Here to help us understand the pain and perhaps mitigate some of our concerns is Damien Sassauer, Chief Emerging Market Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Damien, you are the most popular person at Bloomberg because you are the expert for emerging markets. And boy, they have been grabbing the headlines, whether it is Turkey, Argentina, and South Africa. South Maybe Africa. we should start with South Africa since I think you kind of have done Argentina to death. We'll get to that, I'm sure. <laughs> what is going on in South Africa? And then we'll even go to Asia. But what's happening in South Africa? So South Africa reported GDP that came in well below expectations today. They were down uh, 0.7% quarter over quarter. That's the second consecutive quarter of declining GDP growth, which effectively puts the economy in recession. Um, look, I mean, this is this is, this is is long in the coming. I mean, uh, agricultural production in South Africa has been teetering on the brink of disaster for some time. 
time, it slowed considerably. Um, we did see a bounce back in the mining in mining output this uh, this quarter, which is a good thing, but. Consumption just remains at historical lows, and so you know it's just not hitting households where it matters most. And so you're seeing um, you're seeing slowing growth, you're seeing inflation tick up, and you're just seeing the fundamentals weaken. So is this because of domestic issues, or is there something larger that's happening, or is there just a trigger? Right, the dollar gets stronger, and then that triggers heightened. Yeah. focus on the domestic problems. Well, I mean, it's had poor externals for some time. And, and South Africa at this stage is all about confidence and credibility, right? Ramaphosa has taken over now for Zuma. He's been in power for, you know, more than a year. But his ability to enact these structural reforms that are designed to reduce leverage and improve growth just aren't, we're just we're just not seeing that. And it's not, it's not gaining the credence with offshore creditors. And so what you're seeing are portfolio outflows. And it's much the same as Turkey and Argentina and much of emerging markets. You're just seeing, you know, I don't want to call it hot money, but foreign investors who had invested in some of the local equity and bond markets heading for the hills. And so we've seen 3.2, I believe. 3. Are they heading for the hills because they're losing money or are they heading for the hills because they're just fed up? Well, no, I think I think it depends on where they where they got in. I know that a lot of people have. Well, look, emerging market practitioners who have been in, you know involved in the space for the better part of the last two decades know that now is the time when you want to be looking at emerging markets because EM always overshoots to the upside and the downside. And so it had overshot to the upside. Um, and so people who were getting in in those kind of, uh, you know, the ninth inning, so to speak, probably are feeling a, quite a bit of the pain and they're not, unlikely to return anytime soon. But, a lot but of- someone's got to take those trades off their hands. Correct. And there are veteran emerging market investors who are just thrilled to take someone else's money. Well, I think it's the distrust in the macro community. It's it's the the, the incremental tolerance for risk from a long only emerging market investor is going to be very small at this stage. But if you're an event driven, bottom up fundamental uh, investor with a, a, a long term horizon, now might be a time to take a look. Same The same goes for the global macro guys. There's plenty of relative value opportunities when EM volatility ticks up like this and you right. overshoot to the one side or the other. And, and so is, you want to just focus on South Africa or you want to go somewhere else? You want to go Indonesia? You want to go <laughs> yeah. Turkey, Argentina? I so, mean, what is- so let's talk about Turkey, right? Because on a relative basis, and we had touched on this last week, you know, you've got, um, you've got, you know, uh, five-year CDS in Turkey trading at 600 basis points. That's five-year default protection against, you know, effectively, you know, Turkey defaulting on its dollar obligations. Whereas in a place like Argentina, you see that same risk trading at 800 basis points, meaning it's more expensive to hedge your, uh, to, to protect against default. Now, I would argue that despite all of the shortcomings of both nations from a fundamental perspective, Argentina is doing a lot of the right things. It's appealing to the IMF. It's trying to enact structural reform. Whereas in Turkey, they're just rejecting a lot of, you know, a, a lot of the, the the good advice of people who've been there before, the IMF included, and and they're kind of shutting away their offshore creditors and 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 leaving them with a bit of a bad taste in their mouth. And so, I don't think you're going to see investors return to Turkey, you know, for quite some time. Whereas in Argentina, I think there's 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 more of a reason to. To, to, to look there and and like I just said, Argentina is trading way cheaper than Turkey is right now. So from a relative perspective, you might see the global macro community start to look at these opportunities and and so yeah, you know, on a duration neutral basis, if you're a risk tolerant type of investor, that might be one way to approach the market. So based on your experience, there are event driven or distressed investors that are probably looking to book air tickets from wherever their headquarters <laughs> are. Seriously, to Buenos Aires to get on the ground and start talking to people and going and meeting 
people that need capital. Uh, well, that's been going on. I mean, I mean, if you just look at some of the bigger private equity shops, I mean, just today we, you know, um, we saw um, Oak Tree. Um, yes. You know, and they basically decided to take 2.4 billion of non-performing loans off the hands of China Huarong Asset Management, which, by the way, is one of the largest issuers of emerging market dollar debt. I mean, they're one of the biggest constituents in the broad Bloomberg Barclays, you know, EM aggregate index. And so, you know, the fact that you know you've got a guy like Jay Wantrap who you know is on the record as having said, you know, there is a bunch of you know this, the distressed market's going to be coming back pretty soon. You know, for him to start putting money to work in China in local currency non-performing loans, I think that's relevant in today's day and age. So there is an appetite for risk. It just depends on the type of investor, and and that's what we're seeing. We need to see sort of a, a strong hand weekend exchange go on here. Well done. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure. Damien Sassauer, our chief emerging market strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Always value your uh, participation and your thoughts. Much appreciated. Trade talks between the United States and Canada are scheduled to reopen tomorrow. This coming after the president had threatened Ottawa with expulsion from the North American Free Trade Agreement. And to tell us more about what's going on with these negotiations is our own Sean Donnan, our senior reporter for trade and globalization for Bloomberg. Sean, thank you very much uh, for being with us today. What exactly is different this week than last week when it comes to trade and negotiations with Canada? Well, you're right. It's deja vu all over again in terms of racing towards uh, to save NAFTA, if you will. The big story last week was was the Trump administration striking a deal with with Mexico that it, it rolled out on Monday, and then trying hurriedly to get Canada to to join that. I think the big story this week is uh, how Canada can can fit into Donald Trump's expectations, but also react uh, to what has been some pretty heated rhetoric over the last couple of days. Uh, Trump clearly is trying to raise the pressure on Canada uh, to get to the table, but also to kind of accede to this deal on on his terms. And it's hard to see how Canada can do that for its own domestic political reasons. He's also involved Richard Trumka, the president of the AFL-CIO union, right? That's right. Absolutely. So, I mean, the, the one of the problems that Donald Trump faces is that no one wants a NAFTA without Canada. And that, of course, gives some leverage uh, to uh, to Canada. Uh, and one of those people uh, over the weekend became Richard Trumka, who had given a sort of lukewarm welcome uh, last week to, to, to the NAFTA deal. And then over the weekend said he couldn't see a, a role for a NAFTA deal without Canada, which was in direct opposition to the president, who just the day before had tweeted uh, that he uh, didn't see any legal reason why Canada had to be involved. Again, this is this question of leverage. Who's got the leverage in these negotiations? Trump clearly thinks he can he can plow ahead, but Congress, the U.S. business community, and now the U.S. labor movement all uh, would like to see Canada in this deal, and that obviously changes the equation. Is the president and negotiators for the administration using previous trade agreements in order to try to get this leverage? And I'm referencing, for example, the publication of the recently renegotiated free trade deal with South Korea. 
Yeah. So I think one of the themes that – so over the weekend, uh, or yesterday on Monday, on Labor Day, uh, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office finally published essentially the, the text of a renegotiated deal uh, with South Korea. This was one of uh, Donald Trump's targets to kind of rip up and, and rework these, these – what he calls these terrible trade agreements. And the answer is what we've learned from this is that it's a pretty mild rewrite of, of that trade agreement. There's no one in the business community who is up in arms about this. It doesn't liberalize trade between the U.S. and South Korea, but it certainly doesn't uh, throw out uh, this trade agreement that was first negotiated by the Bush administration, the administration of George W. Bush. Um, what we've learned from that and also from the deal with Mexico is that actually uh, on trade, Donald Trump often talks tough, talks in, in extreme examples, and his negotiators do as well. But the end result tends to be a more benign rewrite, and and the Canadians will have that in mind. And it's one of the reasons the Canadians are probably at some point going to be ready to sign on to the deal negotiated with Mexico. Do the Canadians also have a copy of the U.S. Constitution as part of their <laughs> negotiating tools? Because the senator from the uh, the Democratic senator from Oregon, Senator Ron Wyden. Uh, he's the top Democrat on the Senate Finance Committee that oversees trade policy. He's basically said that the president doesn't even have the power to follow through on any of his threats having to do with Canada and NAFTA. Yeah, and I think President Trump would dispute that. But the, the, the point is that Congress under the U.S. Constitution has the powers to regulate international commerce. For decades, it has uh, kind of deputized the executive uh, or presidents to negotiate trade deals. And then they come back uh, under the terms of, of the rules that, that, that are set by Congress. They come back and, and present trade agreements to, to Congress to ratify. Um, and with NAFTA, there's a big legal debate going on in Washington over just how much power President Trump has to exit that deal. The, the, the treaty itself gives a president the power to give six months notice that a country is leaving uh, the agreement. But Congress argues that they really should have a vote on that as well. Again, this is all about leverage and who's got leverage in this negotiation with Canada. But it, there's no doubt that uh, President Trump is being reined in by a lot of people. In, uh, and we're talking about both Democrats and Republicans in Congress. Do you believe that the Canadian negotiating position is taking into consideration the midterm elections that are set for November? Absolutely. And I think they're also taking into consideration their own uh, elections, Justin Trudeau's own elections uh, next year. Uh, he cannot look weak at home in these negotiations. And likewise, there's a lot of U.S. states and there's a lot of uh, people who report to work up on Capitol Hill each week uh, who have in mind the um, intense level of trade that they do or that their companies do with, um, with, with Canada. Canada is the U.S.'s number one export market. It's a bigger export market for the U.S. than China. It is all, it, it, it accounts for 15%, a little over that, of all the trade that the U.S. does, which is akin to China. Uh, we forget sometimes just how big an economic relationship it is that the U.S. has with its northern neighbor. Well, that's why we've got you to help us understand this and keep us honest about it all. Sean Donnan is our senior reporter for trade and globalization for Bloomberg. He joins us from Washington, D.C., where negotiations are set to resume between the United States and Canada. That is scheduled for tomorrow. Thanks very much. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.